Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. I'm super excited that eToro is sponsoring Untold Stories because the CEO of eToro has been tweeting about Bitcoin since 2012. That's true OG. Now, eToro has become one of the largest crypto companies in the world with over $1 trillion in trading volume per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with extraordinarily low and transparent fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, practice building your crypto portfolio with the eToro $100,000 virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders around the world, myself included, to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. Create an account today at eToro.com. Links are in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Scott Offord, the creator of Crypto Mining. Scott's a broker of ASIC mining gear and helps people buy and sell their miners. He created a Bitcoin mining profitability calculator and an interactive ASIC hardware comparison chart that you can find at cryptomining.tools. It's the only free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI. That includes the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having. The calculator lets you put in your estimated uptime to give you a more realistic profit projections. So check it out and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. Links are in the show notes. Untold Stories is powered by Blockworks Group, the only event and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premiere digital asset conferences, and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. When you hear the words Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, and China, it brings about confusion for most English-speaking countries. Just because it seems like there's a lot that we don't know, there's a lot going on under the layers, and things move and act differently um, in China and in a lot of the um, non-English speaking countries. There's no better person to help us understand what went on in the early days than my good friend Bobby Lee, who truly is a trailblazer when it comes to bringing Bitcoin and bringing cryptocurrency to such a global stage. Bobby, welcome to the show. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. I I want to it's so great to talk to you now because you know even like a few years ago um you were you were so busy every single day and there was such mm-hmm. craziness going on that you would wake up in the morning I'm assuming and say like what now Yeah it was it was it was a crazy few years and I'm very excited to talk about a new company that you just launched Ballet and I've honestly no idea what it is I got an email from you uh, last week, asking if I if I'd like to participate in in a, in a in a beta program, and I was just very excited because yeah. to hear that you were doing something when you were the CEO of BTC China BTCC, uh, such a, a a crazy times. So now you're you're launching this new company, and I'd like to hear. Please tell me about it. Yeah, so we just launched uh, last week. 
uh, ballet. Uh, we, we were in stealth mode for, for a while. We, we, we've been working on this since January of this year, 2019. And uh, ballet is essentially, you know, after, so, so brief history, I, I co-founded BTC China in uh, 2013. I joined, uh, I joined two other co-founders. The, the site started in 2011. We were the very first Bitcoin exchange in China. Um, and in fact, for, for a while, we were the longest running exchange all over the world. Not only that, but you were one of the largest exchange, exchanges by volume in the whole world itself. Yeah, that's right. So in the, I remember distinctly in the peak uh, of 2013, that would be in the Q4, you know, November, December timeframe, uh, Mt. Gox was still running. But at that time, we, we peaked out, edged out uh, in terms of trading volume. So we, for a while, we were the world's largest trading exchange by volume. Um, so obviously China has had its fair share of excitement and, uh, uh, adoption for Bitcoin, uh, in China, Bitcoin has always been more about, you know, the speculation, the trading aspect of it, and less about the, the payments or the store value. I think, uh, it was the frenzy was all over the trading, the high volatility, the prices and all that. Uh, and then fast forward. So, of course, the short history is that in December of 2013, China government came out with regulation policy and that scared people. People thought uh, Bitcoin was banned in China. And uh, and then we had a few years of the bear market, the Bitcoin winter 2014 and 15. And then by end of 16, things picked up again. That's when the Donald Trump got elected around the election time. Prices went up again. Uh, and then by early 17, by early 2017, that's when the government came down, cracking down again. So a quick anecdote is that they were uh, they were upset that Bitcoin prices came back up above a thousand dollars. So they came to our office. What do you mean they were upset? <laughs> it's like it's I guess it's maybe typical of Chinese government uh, perspective that they want to they want to control things. They 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 think they're in control of everything. So the fact that Bitcoin prices went up without their approval or, or without their, without their, <laughs> <laughs> without their uh, proposal, uh, it was uh, it was against their rules. <laughs> so so they came to us and say, hey, what's going on? Why why are the prices going up again? Why don't you guys do something about it? Um, Wait, I mean, not, so yeah, not exactly in those words, hear, yeah, but but it was weird. But I want to hear how this how this played out. Like who. Who calls you? Oh, when, it, it would be. Do they just show up? Yeah, it would be the uh, the PBOC. That's the People's Bank of China. That would be the central bank here. So they have been essentially the uh, the so called regulators overseeing the Bitcoin stuff since 2013. So prior to 2013, no one was paying attention, but by December they they took they took the lead or they were appointed the lead by the central government to oversee anything to do with Bitcoin regulation. So again, because of the bear market, the winter in the subsequent two, three years from 14, 15 and 16, there was no action. Uh, there were nowhere to be found. Uh, but by early 2017, January, it was like the first week of January. They called us on the Sunday. They said, we're coming in tomorrow morning, um, you know, on a Monday. Or actually, they called us on a Friday. Sorry, they called us on a Friday. We, our company was out. Uh, on a on a we all went to see a movie. I think it was a Star Wars movie, Re- Rebel One. And during in the middle of the movie, they called us. They were going to come in on Monday, and they brought like twelve or fifteen people, lawyers and PBOC staff and all that. So that was the first surprise. Like, why all of a sudden you guys are caring about this again? Well, apparently it was because you know 
the Bitcoin price had just topped $1,000. So it got their attention again. And uh, so the rest of the year, as, as if you if you understand, if you know the history, the rest of 2017 was quite uh, awkward. Uh, the exchange in China self-censored, and we we stopped withdrawals. And then there was ICO boom. So at one time we were gonna at one time we we're gonna do the regulations thing where they're gonna issue licenses. Uh, we got a preview of the licensing document and all that. That was in the late spring. What was the plan with that, and what happened? Well, the plan was they they were gonna license they're gonna give licenses to the top three exchanges. Oh, I remember it was you, yeah. Huobi, and OKCoin, right? That's right. That's right. Though that was the intention. Of course, they were gonna open. Of course, they were gonna open the licensing requirements to everyone. But I think they had in mind, you know, essentially three will qualify, the rest won't qualify, kind of like that. Now that that's that's just based on you know. Sure. Yeah, I think that was the assumption of everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So, but nonetheless, we were working hard to to satisfy the requirements in that long document that was in late spring, early summer. We talked to our investors and all that. We got support, um, and and June came around. You know, May, June, July came around, and and then there was no word. So apparently, we think we think the uh, the leaders in China had a change of heart. Either that, or the uh, or that there's always two you know two opposing forces. Maybe the other side. Got more, uh, got more credit, uh, credibility and credentials. So you think within the the party and within you know the powers that be, there were always conflicting sides of of what they would want, like an overall crackdown. Correct. But isn't yeah. it with isn't it within Chinese culture? And it's one of the things that I kind of like about Chinese culture, it's like we're going to regulate, and then there is going to be a loophole, and we're going to regulate the loopholes, kind of like the junket system of of yeah, money in Macau. And can you explain for my listeners how the that junket system works and and what it's all about? Are you talking about the Macau junket system? Yes, I I don't have a a whole lot of uh, perspective on that. Um, the junket system, I, yeah. From what I understand, it's and and it's very rudimentary here because again, my understanding is probably not not even close as good as yours. But from from what I understand, because I've been to Macau, is is you know. The, there's a limit to how much money um, Chinese citizens oh, I see what can yeah, move okay. into Macau. Yeah, yeah. So, so Chinese citizens, because China is a is a uh, the economy is state controlled, right? So it's a communist country. Uh, there's one party system, and uh, the the other factor is that there are capital controls, meaning that money and capital are is not freely uh, move movable across borders. So citizens. And foreigners have a quota of how much foreign money you can exchange into the local Chinese renminbi currency, the CNY currency. And uh, there's a there's a limit on how much you convert in, and there's a limit on how much you convert out. It works out, <clears throat> excuse me, it works out to about fifty thousand U.S. dollars on an annual basis. So Chinese citizens, if they leave China for vacation or to, or whatever, they can only convert up to $50,000 worth of foreign currency. And Macau is considered outside of China's borders for 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 capital controls purposes. So um, you can only bring, you know, the $50,000 worth of money to go gamble in Macau. So I believe you're talking about the junket system, the money, the so-called underground money tunnels, where people, where gamblers would deposit the local renminbi currency with, with junket operators in China mainland. And then they can essentially draw on that credit when they get to the casino. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. 
And I remember walking around like in, in Shenzhen and, and there were these like shops that sold like watches and very expensive things for like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I was asking my friend, who would buy this stuff? Who's walking into a shop, you know, and buying something for, and he's like, well, actually the way it works is you walk in, you buy something for like, let's just say a hundred thousand dollars, but you don't actually take it. You, you then go to Macau and then it's the same store owner. So then you, you basically borrow (laughs) against whatever you bought in China and then you can use that money for gambling. And once you're done, you give them back the money and you, you know, you get your money back, however it works. But, and then, so that seems like, wow, it's such a, like a, an apparent loophole, like the loophole people have storefronts in China and basically, yeah. he was explaining to me that the Chinese government actually regulates the loophole, so they know about <laughs> it, and pe- and like it's regulated. So I thought, I thought basically, you know, like the way I thought things were going to play out, and I was very surprised it didn't, um, was that you would have, you know, because you were doing having to do some crazy things, and 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 I had to do things like this when I was running BitInstant was, and I read somewhere and tell me if I'm wrong that. You know, they for the example, yeah. they would ban you from from using your your corporate bank accounts. So what you would do is you'd create accounts for each customer individually, and then trade and move the money into their own accounts before you would allow them to actually trade. And these were all basically like loopholes. Yeah, exactly. The government would allow you to do them in a way. Yeah, it's it's very common. I think it, it's not so much that they would allow me to allow us to do the, the loophole. It's more like basically the regulation was not uh was not very uh airtight so they issued some regulation but the enforcement was very uh what i call inconsistent so if there's inconsistent enforcement people find workarounds so what what you term as loophole can be more positively described as workarounds what's wrong with the term Uh, loophole i think it's a pretty positive (laughs) word yeah so it's it's a well-known there's a well-known saying in chinese Chinese, uh, where they say when the government issues regulation, the people will come back with counter regulation to counter all the regulation stuff. So there, there's there's workarounds and loopholes and so on. So it's very common. And and sometimes they come back and they they sh- tighten the the regulation, the rules, and then of course there's other workarounds around that. It's just it's back and forth. System. You, you mentioned something earlier about um, in the Chinese culture of gambling and speculating. Um, well, you said speculating, but I associate that with gambling. I've heard yeah. that, you know, in, in the U.S., we have Las Vegas. You frequently travel there. Um, but gambling is not so ingrained in our culture, but it seems like speculating and gambling is a lot more ingrained in the culture of, of, of China. Why is that? And, and, and what does that actually mean? You know, I, I sort of see that. I've seen evidence. I've, see, I've heard stories. I, I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's – Is that I doubt just a stigma? Gen- I doubt it's genetics, but, but it is true that – uh, people of in you know Southeast Asia, uh, Chinese in particular, I think they're to to fall in love, if you will, to to like taking these risks, uh, these measured gambling risks by by speculating. Um, maybe it's in the blood, quote unquote. You know, I yeah, I you know what's I interesting? Guess it's a cultural maybe. You just said the word risk, right? And so I think this I, I notice a big difference. Um, I notice a big difference. I think that, you know, I'm totally overgeneralizing here. So like I'm, you know, I'm not being politically correct here, but I feel like in the U.S. and this is just a feeling um, gamblers in the U.S. are not aware of risks when it comes to gambling and, and speculating. We're not as informed. 
So it's just more of like more for the fun of it. And then people lose a lot of money, things like that. But I feel like in Southeast Asia, like you were saying, I feel like um, they're more aware of the risks. And so gambling is more of like, yes, we're aware of that it's risky and we're aware of the odds and we're aware of the edge, but it's still worth worth it to do it. But then you have a lot of people who are just completely not well-informed at all. And that's where the government has to step in. Am I wrong? Am I totally wrong on that? Or is there some truth to that? It, it, it's hard to say. I mean, there's some truth there. I think generally speaking, I found that people in Asia and China uh, have a, have a more, more of a propensity for mathematics, for learning arithmetic and all that. So they're better with numbers. That's a, it's a very overlyized generalization, but it, but but some, I know, you know certainly you that could explain that could explain why they're more eager to calculate the odds and stuff like that. But overall, if you go to Macau, I wouldn't say you know the people are overall statistical or mathematics withers. Otherwise, I don't think they'd be there. Right? It's sort of a little bit of both. You play. You you're an, an avid poker player. I'm actually a terrible poker player, but I still find myself playing poker. Um, but I like playing Baccarat a lot, and I read that Baccarat was actually a British game that um, got really popular in Macau, and that's why it's so 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 big now. And you could almost find Baccarat in every casino in the world. Um, but it it's it's one of those games that has no strategy, no there's no chance at all. It's literally 50, 50, but you'll <laughs> yeah, see it's, it's people. It's more like 51, 49. <laughs> yeah. But you'll see people there with their number cards, you know, calculating plus or minus all these different things. And when I was trying to figure yeah. out the game, I would sit there looking at the screen. And for those who, who've seen yeah. background tables, I'm talking about, and they have no, like, it doesn't help you. What? It's all chance. Yeah. It's all chance, but they, they, there's a lot of superstition. People will, take the cards they'll peel them they'll they'll show one corner show the other corner it's, it's 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 amazing what rituals they go through i i i totally see through it it's a numbers game it's 49 51 i mean whatever the actual percentages are the point is yeah. the house has an advantage and there's nothing you can do about it but yet people are very superstitious they try to pick trends and pick red and what red and black you know house and uh player bank and player how does superstition play into the uh chinese or asian crypto industry like for example exchanges having red as their color scheme or you know calling them you know um 8 btc is one company or you know like numbers and colors how does that play into it well i don't think superstition plays into the industry specifically but it does play into the chinese culture i think chinese culture especially in in hong kong guangdong province uh there is a um a strong strong bent towards numbers you know lucky numbers and so on are you following what's going on in 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 hong kong right now where as it relates to the crypto industry um no not specifically any any specific events you're referring to hong no kong i mean I, industry? It, it seems like um it seems like hong kong has grown so much in the crypto space there are so many companies based out of not only china but hong kong too and um even going places like singapore it seems like that's grown and that's still growing. I'm just curious. Um, I follow a lot of companies on Twitter, like BitSpark, um, and a lot of different companies that are based out of Hong Kong. And it seems like they're still growing. They're still operating. They're still doing business in spite of um, the protests. Because, you know, the Western media portrays what's going on in Hong Kong right now as like a virtual shutdown of the whole city. I see. I see. 
Yeah, I'm not I'm not too familiar with the crypto scene in Hong Kong specifically. I, I've been in Shanghai for the last, what is it, 13 years now. So I go back and forth between the U.S. and Shanghai. So tell me about ballet. Very exciting. You were in stealth for a long time. I want to hear everything about it, what, you, what you've been doing. Yeah. So, so ballet is a culmination of, of my experience in crypto. I've been in crypto for over eight years now, eight and a half years almost. Um, and, it, it, you know, time flies. Like it, I remember just like yesterday, uh, you know, eight, eight years went by a flash. I started mining Bitcoin myself in 2011. You feel old. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, time flies. I mean, it's it's like almost a decade and epoch. I know in Bitcoin time. Ballet is a culmination of of my experience for many years, and the reason I say that is I, I've done I you know I, I've I've dedicated myself full time to Bitcoin in terms of my career since 2013, uh, longer than most people. Um, and what I have to say is that I, I ran an exchange, we ran a mining pool, we've done you know mobile wallets uh, that which was a custody wallet. We've even done uh, launch physical bitcoins under the BTCC brand. Uh, so I've been there, done that for many aspects. And this time, ballet, what we're doing is we're 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 we developed a really innovate innovative solution to the what we think is the world's easiest and simplest most reliable hardware wallet. It's actually, we think it's the world's first hardware wallet uh, that is non-electronic yet has multi-currency support. Tell me so about, think about that. How does yeah, that so work? So think about that. So so why do, why do people go to hardware wallets? Well, first of all, why do people go to wallets at all? Wallets are needed for you to store and manage your cryptocurrency. In the old days, it was just Bitcoin. Now it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, you know, XRP, and a whole bunch, because that's how people store and manage their assets. And of course, there are certain population who, who use crypto for trading and speculative purposes. But I've realized that, that for me, the single most valuable use case for Bitcoin is actually the, the investment aspect to, to use it as a store of value. Uh, you, you invest in Bitcoin so the value goes up, sort of a hedge against the fiat currency. Do you follow me? Yeah, I actually agree with you on that. I think it's definitely yeah. like in, in the... And in, in one of the top utilities for for Bitcoin today and crypto in general. Yeah, like like I've I've done my fair share of buying things online with Bitcoin, but but of all those purchases, in hindsight, they were all regrettable in the sense that I spent <laughs> so many Bitcoins back in in the early years, right? And that's why no um, one wants to spend Bitcoin anymore. <laughs> yeah, but of course you can also have your fair share of selling Bitcoin to diversify and to profit take, right? So that's also fair. But my point is that. The, the, the global market, you know, the earth, you know, we have that seven or eight billion people now. How, how, how soon will they adopt Bitcoin? The eight, seven, eight billion people probably don't need Bitcoin to buy VPN service or to buy whatever online shopping they, they can do. But it's a great way to have real money in their hands without relying on banks, right? So, so the notion that you can also hedge against inflation and um, currencies loss of value, right? So I think that's what's going to happen in the future too more. I think we're going to see the Bitcoin yeah. as a safe haven, but also is like. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. As, as a safe haven. So, so ballet back to my company, what, what, what did we do? Well, we said we started from that outset. We want to enable global adoption, mass adoption of Bitcoin. But to do that, we really have to make it simple. We really have to make the storage and wallet management of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin very simple. Like has to be brain dead, has to be so easy that a child, a nine-year-old child to a grand, 
grandfather or grandmother who's 99 years old that they can use it. Okay, today's class of wallets, I don't care if it's a mobile wallet, a hardware wallet, are great from a technical geek perspective, but they're way, way, way too hard. Okay, so what, what the insight was, what if we make a physical hardware wallet that was super easy? To make it super easy, we purposely decided to make it non-electronic. So as you, as you can see from the website, Charlie, the ballet wallet is a steel card, stainless steel, uh, with, the with the private key embedded inside underneath a temper evidence sticker. So both, the and then of course on the top of the sticker, we have the public address, the, the actual Bitcoin address, if you will. What this allows for is that it allows people to easily scan the QR code. The, the, by the way, the address is also printed on the, on the top of the card so that people can verify it and type it in if they want to. But they can quickly deposit Bitcoins to it. So that way, if you bring it up to a Bitcoin ATM at a store, at a vending machine, or just a friend has a Bitcoin wallet, they could just scan it with their mobile phone and send Bitcoins over. So it's very easy to receive the Bitcoin. And once you receive the Bitcoins, this wallet, this stainless steel card, is now the actual bearer instrument. It will have, it has your Bitcoin. You don't need to remember any passwords. There are no accounts to open. There's no KYC process. There's no login, no passwords, no two-factor codes to remember. There's no 2FA. There's no uh, SMS verification. So you don't have to worry about SIM, jack, SIM hijacking, right? There's no account names and stuff like that at all. Everything's on that card. So it's a private key on the card and with a decryption passphrase. There's a wallet passphrase as well that's etched onto the card. So it's a How does permanent... that work? Yeah. Well, in terms of what? In terms of retrieving the funds or in terms of storing? So I understand how you would... So do you... Do you can you physically... You can verify how much crypto is on the card. Uh, yep. And then you're using the actual card as a bearer instrument. And then the, and you can check, verify... So it's actually the card right. is meant could potentially be passed from person to person. Um, That's exactly it. Instead of having to yeah, transfer so talk, offline. Yeah, I'll tell you about that. For example, let's say you have a card and let's say you're nice enough to load one Bitcoin on there. So by scanning the QR code on top, anyone can verify that this address will actually has one Bitcoin according to the blockchain. And by the way, we support Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, anything, right? Any other cryptocurrency, including Litecoin, Ethereum and all that. So you can scan it and then you can quickly check the blockchain. It has one Bitcoin. Well, so if you trust the card and the person giving it to you, you just keep it. You can keep it in the safe, store it at home. Uh, so it's great for gifting. So finally, you can give, give out these as gifts for birthdays, for bar mitzvahs, for Christmas, for weddings, for graduations. You know, any sort of celebration, you can give it out. Even if you want to, for a proposed to a girlfriend, you can give it out as a gift. Now, what happens is the cards are, because the card has a private key for your Bitcoin account that's on the blockchain. If you want to move Bitcoins out, you would peel that temper evidence sticker. It will reveal the private key, another QR code underneath it. And you can scratch off the wallet passphrase, scratch off, and then reveal the passphrase. So those two components together using a mobile app, you can then send the Bitcoins anywhere in the world. You can send it to Coinbase, you can send it to an exchange, you can send it to another friend, you can send it to your other wallet. Make sense? It makes sense. eToro is crypto trading made easy. It's one of the largest and smartest trading platforms in the world with extraordinarily low and transparent fees. Join myself and 11 million other traders and create an account at eToro.com. Links in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way.
As a mining equipment broker, Scott Offord wants to make sure his clients are well-informed and making data-backed business decisions. Scott created the only free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI for miners. It's a better way to compare the efficiency of various models of ASIC miners and to see how the price of the miner and the efficiency impacts your mining profitability. So check it out at CryptoMining.Tools and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. That's O-F-F-O-R-D. S C O T T. So do you, do you yeah. see people ever redeeming and not using the cards or, or you think eventually the cards can become a collectible item or it'll be used like, um, for actual transactional or long-term savings? We think it'll be used for actual transactional long-term savings. Um, uh, it's, it's actually, you know, very affordable, right? So, so the cards, you know, there's not going to be a premium on it. It's not, I mean, you can be collectible if you like it, but but they'll be cheap enough that people can buy and give away, right? So it, it it will be it will be used on a daily basis. We think a lot of people will be using them for gifts. A lot of people will be using them to manage the asset. The great thing about this is you hear stories of people losing their Bitcoin because they forgot a password or they get locked out of accounts, or even if someone gets hit by a bus. Right, the rest of the family or their children will have no access to the bitcoins because it was, it was all locked up in the passphrase held by the owner. But with this, if your bitcoins are on these cards, as long as they're safe, you know it's great for what we call inheritance or, or estate planning. Right, you can give it out. You could you, you could pass it down to your children and your grandchildren. So we really think we have an innovative solution that's really for the mass market. Would you be Would you be um, selling them preloaded? Uh, unfortunately, we will not be. That's a great question, Charlie. Uh, due to, and again, this is due to my experience, right? In the past, I, I ran an exchange, I ran a custody wallet. Uh, you know, we've researched all over the world in terms of regulation, licensing, and all that. In many countries, including the United States, uh, strictly uh, restrict that if we're transmitting money, where if I sell you a wallet with money on it, or if I hold, if I offer you a custody wallet service whether it's in the state of New York or in other states, uh, according to FinCEN, it falls under a money transmission uh, guidelines. So we require a money transmitter license or what they call a, a MTL or, or MSB, money service business. So if you get a license, that's a state-by-state thing. And then in New York, there's even more complex, the bit license. So in our case, we're not selling any wallets that has money in it. So these are empty wallets, no different than selling a physical leather wallet where you put U.S. dollars in it. We're just giving you a container that instead of storing U.S. dollars, you could store cryptocurrency. So in that case, we purposely designed a business model around the fact that we're offering a really useful product for the mass market uh, that, is, that will not be regulated. So you don't need to tell us your name. You don't, give, you don't need to give us your ID. There's no KYC at all. Even a mobile app has no login, no passwords, no KYC. So our app is just you just download it and run it. I I think you'll see like potential additions. You may like because I have I have so I have two sets of your uh, full sets of your um, BTCC chips, full sets yeah, of great. them. They're like hidden away somewhere in an undisclosed location. You actually signed <laughs> both. You 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 signed That's both great. sets. Um, yeah, and they're they're dear to my heart. Like I I'll hold them for forever. Um, do you will you, do you anticipate yeah. launching something like that for this where you have like um specific versions maybe like a rose gold or like a titanium version or something that people can give you yeah, oh, yeah. if you make like a rose gold one that's- I'd love to give one to like <laughs> my wife or something. Yeah, that's that's a great point. 
So, so let, let me just recap for, for your audience. Um, several years ago, I think it was three years ago, we at BTCC at the time, we launched a uh, series of printable Bitcoin. So we started with the one Bitcoin. It was a titanium coin. It was loaded with one BTC. At the time, it was before the Bitcoin Cash and all that force. So it was one full BTC. Uh, and then we later launched the poker chips. We had a five BTC as well, titanium. We had the blocks, which were full block reward. We had the poker chips, different denominations, you know, half a Bitcoin, a tenth of a Bitcoin, a quarter, you know, and so on and so forth. So you got the color set. Uh, we had limited editions of those. So those were all sold, loaded with currency. And uh, there was a lot of logistical nightmares shipping it internationally and also, you know, money transmission stuff. So in the end, that business model was, was a little bit flawed. It was hard to scale, okay, because of the, the, the loaded nature. But they were fun. Very expensive. They were, they were fun. They were great fun. They were insured. There's insurance aspects. They were a lot of fun. Collectors loved it. They're all sold out. Now they sell for a premium. If you, I don't know, do you have the five color set or the six color set? I have the six color set, I believe. Oh, wow. Awesome. So th there were only 200 of those made worldwide, the six color signature set. They sell for over two Bitcoins today. So the set you have has six color chips in it, and the nominal value is only 0 0.641 Bitcoins. Of course, with the four coins and all that. But today they sell that chipset. That chipset will probably sell for over two BTC today. So over twenty thousand, over yeah, over twenty-two thousand dollars. The uh, the five chipset. Uh, what's the total denomination value of that? The five chip is missing the the purple half of Bitcoin, so it only has zero point one four one. So it's a black chip, green chip, red, a uh, blue chip, red chip, and a white chip. That's wow. a five color chip. Yeah, yeah. So nonetheless, so those were those were the physical bitcoins sold by BTCC. Yeah, and I they're, just they're, they're, that business stopped. Yeah, I just checked my list, and and each set has point zero point six four one. So I have the six the six chips, six color chips. Yeah, there you go. Congratulations. Wow. So um, I'm holding those forever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and by the way, they were, they were great for gifts, right? You buy some bitcoin, you give it to to a friend. Now with ballet. We're not making round chips. We're making these credit card size stainless steel cards. And, and you mentioned the Rolls Gold. We will eventually release a high-end product under a different banner. The version today, the series called Real, R-E-A-L. The idea is we'll see, I'm giving you real Bitcoin. I'm giving you real Bitcoin, real Ethereum, real Litecoin, and this is real cryptocurrency. Yeah. Do you know why I like this? Um, <clears throat> Because Please. so I'm a big I'm a big like uh, hardware wallet geek. I am. I I, yeah, I think yeah. I own one of every everything anything physically manifestation of of bitcoin i own so i literally have awesome. a drawer filled with every single hardware wallet that exists um and i'm telling yeah. you you could you can name me one right now i own one um and i have awesome. multiple awesome. and i give them away because i just i, I like yeah, to yeah. geek out and nerd out on them and play with them and stuff <laughs> um exactly and so that's, but that's what, why you're so well respected, Charlie. You're you're such an early pioneer. That's thank awesome. you. Um, I appreciate that, and 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 I believe you are as well. And so, what what I like about this though is because in my pocket currently, I don't have anything. Yeah. So what you're saying is basically it will be the same size and metallic feel as my American Express card. And so exactly. I can carry exactly. one. Exactly. The titanium. Yeah. Exactly. The platinum card. Yeah, so it will be si same size as that. When you carry that, you might want to even carry two or three because you carry them either empty or whatever. And then when you meet a friend at a coffee shop or at a dinner, they say, hey, what do you do? What are your interests, hobbies? Bitcoin, would you like to buy some? Or here's a small gift. You can immediately load it with whatever amount you want, $10, $50, $100, and hand it to that person. 
and they will now be a proud owner of Bitcoin. What is it? What will it cost? What does it cost now for for an empty one? So I don't want to talk about it on the podcast. It's all on the website. You could go pre-order now. Amazing. Right. So we've opened up a beta program. You could download the app. Uh, you could apply for the beta program. We're sending these cards out to all the industry leaders. So Charlie, it's on the way to you in the mail. So hope you receive it in the next few days. Um, we're, we're very excited. We just launched it last week. And uh, I, 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 the reason, by the way, I sold my, but you know, I sold my company last year, right? I sold BTCC last year in early January, 2000. Tell me about that because I've heard, and, I heard rumors about that, but I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. We didn't do a big, pre- oh, thank you. We didn't do a big press tour. Um, essentially, uh, we had a buyer from Hong Kong, a financial company who was interested in, uh, in our business. And they decided to buy the whole business out, uh, the international business. That was in January 2018. Uh, the, the domestic Chinese business, we wound that down, closed it off. But the international business got sold to BTCC. That included the exchange, the Mobi wallet, as well as the mining pool. So they run that business. It's put over. So the point was, I made, I made some good money selling the company. Uh, you know, in hindsight, the timing was, was quite good, but it wasn't yeah. exactly timed like that. Are you funding Bella yourself? Yeah, I, I, I'm funding it. We have some investors as well. Isn't that the best? Uh, it's very exciting. Yeah. So, so the point is that, you know, I, I've made some money in both selling the company and also from my early Bitcoin investment. So the point is, I, I don't need to work. I don't need to be an entrepreneur again. But the idea for ballet was so compelling. So at the end of last year, I finally decided, hey, you know, this idea is so awesome. I need to go do it myself. Like, I don't, I don't think anyone else would do it. You know, they had 10 years. No one's done it yet. And I might as well go do it myself. So I launched this new startup right away uh, in January this year. Got a team together. Uh, a lot of people came from my old company, from BTCC. And we had a lot of experience doing this because we have experience building the physical Bitcoin and selling that. So in this case, we're not selling physical Bitcoins, but we are selling physical hardware wallets. So the, the innovation here is the empty wallets, that they're non-electronic. The reason they're non-electronic, Charlie, is that Looking back, all electronic wallets are cumbersome and they're prone to electronic failure. Uh, they're prone to security hacking. They're prone to battery power issues. They're prone to firmware upgrade issues, right? All the ledgers and treasures that they go through firmware upgrades. And a lot of times that could be a scary moment. And sometimes some of them have NFC chips, Bluetooth pairing issues and all that stuff. So I think they're great for geeks like me and you maybe. But but certainly the harder wallets that are electronic in nature are not necessarily suitable for the everyday person. I agree. So we purposely made ballet wallets non-electronic and then resilient. Literally, you could put in the time capsule 20, 30 years later, you can come back and funds will be there. I heard a great quote from someone, and I like that you keep saying wallet because someone said wallets are for like one thing, but vaults are for like more complicated. I forget the exact quote, but it kind of makes sense. Like, I you know, the Trezor, Ledger... Um, all these hardware wallets are great, but they're not for everyday use. They're not for like, you know, you don't carry a Trezor in your pocket to show people and to promote advocacy for Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency. But this is something that I literally, as I said, I'm excited about it because I literally will carry one in my wallet and then it'll be fun Absolutely. to show people or, you know, God forbid, exactly. that, you know, um, and you've probably experienced, I've traveled over 40 countries and you've probably traveled to more. Wow. There have been times. Yeah where I've been in a pinch um, where there have been times where like credit card doesn't work. And what do you do? 
If you simply carry a card yeah. with one Bitcoin on it, you can literally be in Mongolia, yeah. anywhere in the world, <laughs> in Africa, Morocco, anywhere in the world you, you could be. You can find someone willing to buy your Bitcoin. It's like gold. Absolutely. Or buy a fraction of it. Yeah. Buy a fraction of it, right? Not just the whole thing. And that's why that's exactly it. This, we, will, we will enable that. That's why this is so yeah. important. I'm very excited for it. Um, how did you design it? So I think it, it will really enable more global adoption. I think if we're successful and if we catch the bull, the, the bull market well, with timing-wise, I think this can make a dent in, in increasing global adoption of Bitcoin, people holding it. So, so the design is this. Okay, The principle was we wanted to borrow from the physical Bitcoins. The notion that the private key is on the device itself, it becomes a bearer instrument. You think about it. Normal people, okay, not, to, not computer science geeks like myself, normal people, they don't know how to, to do digital security. They don't know how to do passwords. They don't know how to keep passwords safe. They don't know how to do two-factor authentication. They don't know how to do chips and firmwares and security updates and patches and all that stuff, right? They, they barely know how to log in, and they don't want to do password resets and, and 2FA and SMS verification, right? So normal people actually know how to keep things safe. They keep it safe because they lock it at home. They lock it in the drawer. They keep it in the bank safe. You know, you keep it in your pockets. Don't lose it. So the notion is we want to bring cryptocurrency, which is so virtual, bring it back to the physical world, make it into a physical instance where we hand it to you. You hold it. You keep it safe. That's as simple as it gets. And again, a children can use it. A grandparent and great-grandparents can use it as well because you don't need any apps with it. We have a great mobile app as a companion tool, but it is not necessary. Because as soon as, as soon as you load the Bitcoin onto it, your card is loaded. It has value. You don't need to you don't need to use the app at all unless you want to check the value, right? It makes, does that make sense? It makes complete sense. So we, we designed it from that basic principle to be non-electronic. And then we we chose a really strong material, stainless steel. We made into size of a credit card to be to be compatible but but the card itself there's nothing on it there's no chin there's no pin and chip there's nothing like that there's no magnetic stripe there's nothing all it has is a sticker with a qr code underneath it and it has the the pass that passphrase oh i want to tell you something really cool charlie yeah with physical bitcoins people are really worried about uh the creator that's literally what i was going to ask next that's that's oh yeah 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 we, we have the most awesome solution. We, we are the world's first to do this. Here's the awesome thing. You've, you may have heard of Bit38. Bit38 is an industry standard that's been around for, for five, six, whatever years. Okay? It allows for the creation of encrypted private keys. Think about that. It's a private key that has an additional password. Okay? And what we've done is we've separated those two components. We've created the ballet wallet from two locations geographically. The private key sticker is manufactured in China because that's where the supply chain is for the for the for the stickers and the steel cards. Okay, and then the password, the wallet passphrase, is actually manufactured and created in the United States in our headquarters in Las Vegas. Okay, so what I'm saying is you need both components to decrypt the wallet. Do you follow me? I do. There's, there's a pri- there's a there's an encrypted private key. And then there's a passphrase, a wallet password. You need both components. And we, the way we do it, if these two components are generated offline using entropy, using, we're rolling dice to generate random entropy, create these uh, passphrases and encrypted private keys. They're done separately in different countries, thousands of miles apart, on offline computers that never touch the internet, on rotating magnetic hard drives, which you could delete 
and and hammer out. So it's not stored on some SSD that's never deletable, erasable, right? So the, the, the two data never come together. They never, they're never sent electronically. They're never sent on USB drives. They're never sent over email or internet. And they're literally thousands of miles apart. They never come together. After the product is made, the data is deleted. We delete it on both sides. So our company is not a custody wallet. We don't keep the private keys. We don't want to keep the private keys. If I had wanted to keep your private keys, I would have launched a custody wallet, which is what we did at BTCC. Wow. So for this startup, I purposely don't want to touch your private keys. I, it's none of my business how you use a wallet, how much money in it. We don't even keep track of how much you store in it. It's all up to you. Okay? But we make it super, super easy. We call this two-factor key generation. The key generation is it's like literally, you should call it like, like two-continent key yeah. generation. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's another way to call it, two-continent key generation, right? We, call, we think of it as a multinational, you know, bifurcated, you know, bilateral, whatever, whatever the nice words are, but it's a two-factor key generation. And we're the first to do that. Literally, it comes together for the first time on the card itself, okay? But, but because of the tamper as a nature, once it's, once it's on the same card, uh, if you want to peek at it, you have to peel the sticker or scratch off the laser thing. But by then, the card is already ruined. It's, already, it's not sellable. It's no longer in new condition. So someone right? will be so, able to know so you, if the card was tampered with or even peeked at absolutely. and they not accept that. Absolutely. How about long term? Exactly. Yeah. Like, what about the paper or the seal? Does that will that last twenty, thirty years? We think it will. The only thing I want to be very, very, uh, very honest and truthful is this is not one hundred percent fireproof. Okay, because because um, th there's a sticker on it which, which which can burn in the fire. So we we, we think this is not fireproof. Uh, I don't want you to try the hard way, learn it the hard way. But the point is that uh, it's waterproof. It's 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 weatherproof. To the elements, uh, you could put in the time capsule. Twenty years, thirty years later, it'll still be there, um, unless unless there's some quantum computer hack that'll break Bitcoin. But other than that, uh, this is really good for long-term storage. Wow, I'm very yeah. excited, and congratulations. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm super excited. I the way I see it is, we're we're doing something. We we developed something really innovative, and I'm just throw it out to the market and see if it sticks. If it does, people love it. That's great. We're gonna make some money selling it. If it doesn't, hey, I've tried my best. I think at least I've contributed to the society, to the industry. I think it'll be very at least successful. I'll use it myself. Yeah. Who who are some of the yeah. going going back for a second? Who were some of the first yeah. crypto entrepreneurs or crypto leaders that you met when you got involved in the space? Because you got involved in two, you know very early two thousand eleven. It sounds like so. Um, I guess people yeah. came and met you, not the other way around. You meeting them. But what are some like early stories, <laughs> early things that you kind of like you remember that that kind of shaped now your, your views of, of this industry? Yeah. So I started in 2011, I started mining. So my char my brother, Charlie, uh, the other Charlie, Charlie Lee, uh, he introduced me to Bitcoin in early spring of 2011. And um, I started mining Bitcoin uh, using some of the GPUs I, I bought from him. So I was mining Bitcoin in China and Shanghai. You know, I had a rig going with four Bitcoin, uh, four, four graphics cards chugging along. I think we, I think I mined about twenty Bitcoins that summer. So it it was just you know like a few hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin. I barely paid for electricity. Um, but and the 2012 was a quiet year. I was working at Walmart China, so I I didn't do too much with Bitcoin then. But by late 2012, by early 2013, that's when I got into it full time. I I left my job at Walmart and decided to dedicate my career to it. So, so, the, so the first Bitcoin conference I went to was the one in the spring. I think it was April or May of 2013 in San Jose. I oh, yeah, I was there. at that one too. Um, yeah, you were there. Uh, I brought, uh, 
you know, Brian Armstrong was there, a bunch of like Aaron Borges, all, 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 all of you guys, uh, you know, great, I'm great fans with all of you guys were, you guys are the true OG. Uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun meeting you guys at the conference. Uh, my brother went, uh, yeah, it was awesome. And of course we saw the booth with Bit instant. You had a booth there. I, I, and I we course, did. I think I, jo- I joked to your brother on yeah. Twitter, like a few weeks ago, I said, what would we do without yeah, you? Yeah. And he said, I forgot what he said. He's like, you'd be the only cool Charlie left or something like that. <laughs> That's, funny. That's funny. Yeah. Um, and, uh, what else? And Mike Caldwell, right? He's the maker of the Cassatius, the very famous. Yeah, we had him on the show. Bitcoin. Yep, yep. Mike, Mike Caldwell, awesome guy. I met him there as well. I, I bought my first Cassatius coin off of him on, at that conference in person. Hey, are you going to so be... That was quite memorable. Last year, I, I was in this poker tournament in October in Las Vegas, um, and your brother played. It was a World CryptoCon. Are you interested? Are you playing yeah, this year? Yeah, how was that? I, I haven't signed up yet, but I, I'm interested. I'll be there for that time at the end of October. Yeah, you should. You should. I'm running it. my own event that day, um, a trading oh, event. Cool. You should come and you should come to that event too. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll try to go to World CryptoCon. Like the Litecoin Summit uh, yes. conference is also there. It'll right? be the same week. That. So I'll be there for that. But I'm I'm not yeah, going to so be we'll, on the we'll, same table as you yeah. though, because I don't want to lose. They put me next <laughs> to Scotty Wynn last year. Here, I've probably played like oh, really? poker three Scotty times Wynn. in my whole life, and they put me next to Scotty yeah. Wynn, who's taking me all in every hand. Yeah. For those that don't know, he's I like did. top 10 <laughs> poker players in the world. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never met him, but I've seen him on TV. I'm never playing with him again. Yeah, they, 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 they go really aggressive, especially against new people. Thanks. That's what you do probably, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I'm not, I'm not that good. I'm not, I did play in the World Series of Poker last year, uh, 2000, what was it, 2018. That was a lot of fun. I did that for the first time ever. Share me some like tips and secrets of, of you, how you play poker to, to make me a little bit better. Well, for poker, it's a, it's a game what they call of incomplete information, right? Because what the, you have two cards, they have two cards, and then there's the common uh, cards, the flop, the turn, and the river. But in the end, you know, maximum you see seven cards, right? There's five on the board, and you see you see you have the two whole cards, and I, they they actually see two cards in the deck. You only have seven. You've only seen seven. So what cards can the other opponents have? It's, it's a huge mystery, right? It's, it's based on you have to deduce it based on what, how they've acted, how they've behaved. You know, are they truthful? Were they trying to scam you? Were they trying to, you know, overplay a hand and so on and so forth? So, so um, one of the insights is there's a concept called you don't play your cards, but you play the person, right? You you can essentially outplay someone just by by outthinking, outmaneuvering them, um, and 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 making. Take, making basically play as if you had a different hand, yeah, and they might fall point. for it and believe you have a different hand. That's a good right? point. Um, so, sorry, yeah. you continue. No, it's just it's just that. Like when you said Scotty Wynn was was uh, going all in on you, well, you, you knew, for example, Charlie, you know he's a good player, and you were thinking that he must have a good hand. He might just have queen three off suit, and because so how should know, I have because, played it differently you know, he, then? Well, I, I don't know. I, it depends on circumstances. So but, I, I was playing against a what they call yeah. I was playing a few weeks ago and um, just like a fun game. And there were, I noticed there's this guy at my table who just d- didn't like me for some reason, I guess. Cause I was, you know, he was there all the time and I was here. I'm a kid. Um, and it seemed like his goal was to like beat me. And so what I started doing was I started yeah. playing like heavy against him. And then when yeah. I had a really, really good hand, I started backing yeah. down on purpose to make him think that he had yeah. me. And then, he, 
he, yeah. he didn't. And I, I beat him like, oh my, he, I think he had like three of a kind, but I had a better hand. I may have had like a, a flush yeah. or something or whatever awesome. it was. And, and he yeah. left that, that, that got him out. And he was so angry. Oh, I see. You took all his money. Took all of, took Well, all it was like $100. It yeah. wasn't a lot of money. But. Yeah. No, no, no. But, but that's a hard thing. Right? When, when you have a good hand, it's not hard to win. But what's really hard is to win a lot of money, right? Because you, not only do you want to win the hand, but you want to you want them to feel in a way that they give you all their money, right? Yeah. So the worst feeling really about poker. The worst feeling is having a good hand when everyone else already like folded and it's you and another like person or two. Cause then uh, like, yeah, you can't yeah. build the pot. What do you do? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's why they say pocket aces aren't that great because pocket aces, you know, you, you, you win outright, but you don't necessarily win a lot of money. And, and the worst thing is sometimes you get really trapped and you lose a lot of money with pocket aces. Whereas like a suited connector, like a 10 Jack suited or K, K Jack suited can win you a lot more money. That's a good point. Know? Hey Bobby, so how can how can uh, people follow what you're what you're working on and what you're doing? Oh, your Twitter, your website, all that information. Yeah, my Twitter is Bobby C Lee uh, at B O B B Y C L E E. On 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 Twitter, our our company Ballet is at Ballet Crypto, so it's B A L L E T C R Y P T O. Where did you come up with that name? Why did you choose that? <laughs> yeah, ballet. The, the reason is it, it's really unconventional. And we actually went through a lot of names and finally we settled on this. We liked it for a variety of reasons. Uh, the number, number one reason is it's so, it's so non-standard for a crypto sort of finance company that uh, what's great is in terms of trademark and purposes, uh, th there's no finance companies ever using the word ballet, right? And the other amazing thing is that uh, it, it nicely describes our product and our, our sort of vision. It evokes a sense of simplicity and elegance. Uh, we think our wallet is so simple and elegant that really can reach the all corners of the world. Okay, and the word ballet is actually pronounced the same and spelled the same in multiple languages all over the world. People, it, it has instant recognition, and I think people will remember it. Ballet. Wow, that's a great point. Um, lastly, I never thought about that. Yeah. W which point? The, well, like that. It's a universal word. Yeah, it, it is. It's a natural English word. It's universal. Ballet in French and Spanish and in many languages, even in Chinese, it's pronounced ballet. Um, uh, and then also, basically, it, it starts with the letter B, which we stylized to look at the Bitcoin B. So we, we made our own version of ballet, our own version of that B logo. So our app is called Ballet Crypto. Our, uh, our Twitter account, Ballet Crypto, you can go to our website. Uh, it's really exciting. I hope, you know, hope your audience uh, learns more about Ballet Wallet. Uh, they could find great use for themselves or for their friends. You know, go uh, come to our website, order, pre-order it, or even apply to for for a beta program. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Charlie, for having me. Thank you. I'll I'll see you in October. Yeah. Let's let's meet up in Las Vegas in October. Sounds good. I'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Scott Offord, the creator of crypto mining. Scott's a broker of ASIC mining gear and helps people buy and sell their miners. He created a Bitcoin mining profitability calculator and an interactive ASIC hardware comparison chart that you can find at CryptoMining.Tools. It's the only free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI. That includes the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having. The calculator lets you put in your estimated uptime to give you a more realistic profit projections. So check it out and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. 
See you next week.